0: Welcome to episode 359 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe & Johnson. We are lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government, and the usual or at least normally usual disclaimer applies that the views expressed here do not reflect the opinions of the firm or its clients or today do not reflect the opinions of one Stuart Baker. Who will not be able to join us today. He is allegedly in the wilds of New Hampshire, taking his grandson hiking. And if you are Stuart Baker's grandson and you're being forced to listen to this podcast, please accept my apologies and tell your grandpa to turn off the podcast. Today's news roundup features a number of great panelists. First, we have Nick Weaver, veteran panelist, lecturer in the computer science department at UC Berkeley, and researcher in the International Computer Science Institute at Berkeley. Welcome, Nick. Thank you very much. I'm also joined today by Paul Hughes, who's one of my colleagues at Steptoe & Johnson in our Brussels office. Paul was formerly in our London office uh, and has a veteran of private practice and uh, academia. He advises clients on competition law and privacy and data protection issues. Welcome to you as well, Paul. Thank you. And I'm Brian Egan. I'm a partner at Steptoe and Johnson's Washington office, formerly of the National Security Council and the State Department and the Treasury Department on the government side. And I'll be sitting in and trying my best to replace Stewart this week. To our listeners, I want to assure you that Stuart will be back in the saddle, rejoining the podcast next week. So we've had a busy uh, week in cyber news. I wanna start with an announcement that the US Justice Department made last week, or at least it was leaked last week in media outlets. The acting deputy attorney general, John Carlin, announced that DOJ was creating a ransomware and digital extortion task force to be made of officials from Maine Justice, the U.S. Attorney's offices around the country, and the FBI. Nick,
1: you want to tell us what's going on there? Basically, over the past few years, the Bitcoin has committed a crime against all of us. It has enabled criminals to extort large amounts of money by... Stealing information and revealing it publicly or threatening to, as well as taking information and encrypting it. And this has become a billion-dollar industry amongst a groups in largely Russia and other countries where U.S. extradition doesn't apply. And this is welcome news that the US government is finally trying to take this really seriously. And it is a serious problem. Like right now there's a, we just found out about a ransomware attack or a extortion attack targeting one of Apple's suppliers that has already been the you pay us 50 million or we're going to release data and here to prove it, we're already starting to release data. And on one hand, it means I now actually like the looks of the new upcoming MacBook Pro, but <laughs> on the other hand, that makes me necessarily want to delay the update. Right, right. Now,
0: yes, yeah, yeah, some have said that last year was our worst year ever on ransomware attacks. And in, in addition to the private sector, you had attacks on hospitals that were pretty well publicized in the United States, on school districts, on utilities. Does this announcement by the Justice Department, do you think that this has an impact on the, on the bad guys here, Nick, or, or what do you think?
1: I think it will have an impact on the bad guys because among other things, it's a realization that we aren't going to be able to indict and prosecute these guys. And we instead have to start thinking more creatively. So for example, My argument on this space is it's time to go after the cryptocurrencies themselves, that if you can disrupt that ecology, you'll disrupt the key payment mechanisms. And if they can't collect payments, they go out of business.
0: So going after holding the cryptocurrencies themselves responsible in some way for being complicit in these attacks
1: or? somewhat also just observing that the cryptocurrency space has not actually produced any innovation so using existing regulation and new regulatory tools like the recent proposal that was temporarily shelved but will probably be resumed requiring that the large cryptocurrency exchanges implicit explicitly do know your customer responsibilities on the recipient wallets that get transferred to and putting those obligations forward on those will really reduce i think the ability to actually pay these guys because half of them are known or should be considered sanctioned entities
0: yeah that's and these payments always bring up tough issues for the the victims as well we've talked about in earlier podcasts so how if you're paying a sanctioned entity in bitcoin or other digital currency or good old fashioned us dollars you may yourself be committing a violation of US law if you're a US person doing that. So it is a space that there are a variety of private sector views. Insurance companies have their own views. Many sell cybersecurity insurance now that helps insure against these attacks. But it's one that, and of course, DHS is also playing. Secretary Mayorkas a couple months ago announced that these attacks should shock everyone's conscience, particularly when they're uh, targeting things like hospitals and healthcare networks. Works. So, I think we're, we are, it, it should be interesting to see whether this task force can actually pre- result in meaningful change in this space. Paul, let's move to another area of intense government focus on the other side of the Atlantic, which is regulating artificial intelligence. In the U.S., we've had some somewhat modest efforts in that regard, I would say, but in the EU and in Brussels, regulators seem to be taking a more ambitious approach. Can you tell us about that?
2: Yes. Yes, indeed. So I like to think of America as the center of innovation and the EU as the center of regulation. (laughs) And so the EU is going for it again, as they did with the GDPR. They're looking to establish a gold standard. So they're moving into a sort of back federal regulatory space in order to create what they hope will be a system that has to be adopted across a wide swathe of, of global operations. So there are three centres, obviously China, the EU and the US. China is doing its own thing, but even they sort of acknowledge the power of big tech to some degree. The US Biden administration may well regulate in this area, but the EU wants to move and move quickly to occupy that space. I won't even bother to talk about the UK just now outside the EU. And so the approach that the EU is going to adopt is a a sort of, first of all, I think probably we need to start with what's happened. So 21st of April, draft new regulation was used by the European Commission. European Parliament, uh, I think, has reservations about it because they wanted to regulate far more aggressively. It's going to apply to anyone who develops um, an AI system with a view to placing it on the EU market or putting it into service there. So they're a provider, it's effectively a vendor. And it's going to apply to users as well, people who use it.
0: And AI system, that's, is that a term of art in the regulation? And if so, what is, it, what is an AI system?
2: Yeah, an AI system is a term of art. So it's effectively, it's a broad definition and it includes software developed with a variety of learning techniques, so that's machine learning, logic and knowledge based approaches, statistical approaches that work to human set objectives and can generate outputs such as content, predictions, recommendations or decisions influencing the environments in which they interact. It's a very broad very broad definition. I mean, the European Parliament had an earlier definition, but that was just as broad. Whichever way you look, you're going to wind up with a broad definition of AI system.
0: And are all AI systems treated equally under this uh, proposed regulation? Mm-hmm.
2: No, they're not. So, there, so there's something called high-risk AI, and that's linked to some annexes at the back of the of the the regulation. And it's going to hit things like transport, agricultural machinery, aviation, but other things as well. So it's going to impact on recruitment processes, employee assessments, student recruitment, student assessment. So it's it, it hitting both specific sectors and also certain types.
0: And I think, Paul, you said that this is intended to apply to providers of AI systems, if I heard that correctly. and So it sounds like, like GDPR, the goal is to be the market leader, but also to have a very pretty aggressive extraterritorial approach uh, to who should be regulated.
2: You're absolutely right. So it's going to apply to all EU and non-EU providers place AI systems on the EU market uh, is going to apply to EU users of AI systems and providers and users of non-EU AI systems if the output of the AI system is used in the EU. So I mean you know you could see a case for saying that if you're engaged in student recruitment and you're using AI systems to to recruit or assess and that output has an effect in the EU then a university in the U.S. might be caught within that, if it's using, and and that's going to be a high-risk AI system, right? Because it affects fundamental rights. So, I mean, there are other things that are called like credit uh, scoring.
0: I I thought it was interesting that credit scoring in particular was called out in here. I mean, I don't know if that was a bone that the EU threw to the US to show that this had a kind of China focus to it or a concern. And if you're Equifax, should you now be worried if you're here in the United States for what you do in terms of credit rating?
2: Yeah, so, so there are two types of scoring. There's credit worthiness checks and, and credit scoring, and then there's social scoring. So credit worthiness checks and credit scoring are, are, are deemed high risk, and then social scoring is just banned outright, no matter whether you're high risk or not. So the financial services sector was always going to be in the crosshair, along with these other transport, medical device, radio equipment, and other sectors. And it's done by virtue of not the sector per se, but the activities within the financial sector that might deny people loans or you know mortgages and the like.
0: I see. I see. So you had mentioned that the European Parliament was interested in asserting its own regulatory authority here. Can you say a little bit about the next steps and how how close are we to having an actual regulation and is it likely to change as it goes through the process?
2: Yeah, we're years away. (laughs) So there'll be a a sort of a battle royal within the European Parliament. They they are much keener on fundamental rights. So they they will focus very heavily on those elements of high-risk AI that are deemed fundamental rights. So, for example, your access to university admission your access to credit and so on, and biometric identification, for example. So they'll have a very heavy focus on that. I think everybody's agreed probably transport, medical devices, safety critical products are going to come within this because no one wants to get moaned down by a self-driving car. Fail to be diagnosed as having some particular disease.
0: That... All right. Well, very interesting. We'll see where this goes. And here in the United States, the U.S. Federal Trade Commission came out with a much more modest proposal under its own authorities, which are really in the area of consumer protection law, it's suggesting how it's going to approach AI moving forward. And in the one hand, this is a modest proposal, but on the other hand, this is an area where the FTC has been criticized under both the Trump and the Obama administrations for not doing enough to rein in major technology companies. So what the FTC has talked about are things like the the potential for incomplete data sets to result in racial or gender bias, or algorithms that haven't been appropriately tested. And the FTC basically says to companies, if you're using these tools, we're going to monitor your use of those tools and regulate them as we do any other tools that could potentially harm consumers and result in improper consumer protections. It'll be interesting to see if there's actually any bite to this. The other thing that happened on the FTC front last week was that a new nominee for FTC commissioner, a woman named Lena Khan, who is a very I would say aggressively anti-major technology, had a great confirmation hearing. She was actually championed by both Republicans and Democrats. And so this may be seen as a barometer of things to come, at least in a very narrow slice within the U.S. regulatory space. Nick, another thing that happened on Capitol Hill last week was one of the my favorite uh, recent legislative proposals names, which is the Fourth Amendment is not for sale act, which it sounds a little bit like motherhood and apple pie act. Uh, But can you tell us what is behind uh, this uh, legislative initiative from Senator Wyden on the Democratic side and Senator Paul on the Republican side?
1: So what it is, there's this ecology these days of companies that buy, aggregate, and sell pseudonymized location data on people this is driven by advertising on mobile devices primarily. And the Customs and Border Protection and others have realized that this is actually a very useful piece of data because you can like see where people are trying to cross the border illegally. You can possibly find other stuff. And since it's pseudonymous, you can't identify individual people, but you can identify patterns and then just wait so it's quite an or you then do court orders to get tower dumps and stuff like that and identify individuals that way and rightly a lot of people find this distasteful behavior and it's quite significant because it doesn't just apply to the u.s government so like there's a great report in the Wall Street Journal today about how, hey, this is a great way to find all the secret CIA and military bases on the planet.
0: Just by tracking cell phone locational data and other information. Just
1: by buying cell phone locational data. That's the thing, that because it's not anonymous, it's pseudonymous, and because it's global and available for a paycheck, it's available to all sorts of people you'd call questionable to bad actors, depending on your point of view. And I really wish this wasn't the Fourth Amendment is not for sale act, but your privacy is not for sale act. The ability of the US government to gain this information is a symptom. The disease is this information is being collected, distributed, and sold. So if
0: I am a, for example, a T-Mobile cell phone customer, is it T-Mobile who is collecting and selling my data? Is it the apps that I'm installing on my phone? That, or is it a combination of all of these guys?
1: It's mostly the apps that are being installed on the phones because the telecoms actually have significant regulations about protecting your privacy. These apps do not. And so, for example, when the FBI was looking into the Capitol insurrection, the big data sources they got were as much more from Google than from the cell phone providers because Google really likes keeping this information around.
0: I see. And some are saying this is uh, a kind of an end run around a case in the Supreme Court a few years ago called Carpenter that while it was a somewhat narrow holding, it was championed by privacy and civil liberties advocates. Basically it held that the FBI's acquisition of cell phone locational information required a probable cause warrant. But if you can just go out and buy the data, then why do you need to bother with any warrant, I guess, is the concern that some have.
1: Yes, and it is a legitimate concern, but I think the real concern is that it's for sale at all, not that the U.S. government is buying it along with, say, oh, probably the Russian government. Right,
0: right. Yes, yes. Paul, let me go back to you, if I could, for a moment here. This So last week, I see the EU Council approved plans to create what they're calling a Cybersecurity Competence Center in Bucharest, Romania. And I'm not sure if you have comments or thoughts on this in on the US side, it's sometimes hard to keep track of what these different organizations are. So this, the full name, which is a mouthful is the European Cybersecurity Industrial Technology and Research Competence Center. But is this is this a development of note? Or what is your observation on this?
2: So effectively, this is trying, I think, to link up private actors and research centers with money, and align their research objectives with the strategic direction that the EU wants to go. So it's it's public money that's going to be made available under these, these two programmes. And I think it, it's important in the sense that if, if you're looking to do research in this area, if you're looking to innovate, it will help focus you on the areas that the EU strategically wants to advance in terms of in cybersecurity. It's a classic sort of EU dirigiste sort of thing. You've got a load of money, you've got a load of actors and you've got a strategic direction. What makes me laugh is that the, the UK is still associated uh, with these programmes because they want the money and so they're happy to, to pull resources when it comes to remaining on board with these innovative approaches even if it means helping the European Union to achieve its strategic goals, which we said we weren't interested.
0: Amazing. Yes, it's amazing what money will do sometimes in these areas. Well, on the kind of public-private partnership front in the United States, and I'm not sure this is a public-private partnership that is desired by industry or not, but we've heard more from the Biden administration and the Energy Department on an initiative that it has announced to enhance the cybersecurity of electrical utilities, industrial control systems, and the electric sector and energy sector supply chain. What was announced last week is that the Energy Department in coordination with other parts of the US government will look to seek input from industry on ways to better secure the supply chain. For US energy systems. So, this is an affirmative outreach request for additional information, request for partnership. At the same time, these actions, are, you know, on the one hand, they're building on a Trump administration initiative in an executive order called Executive Order 13920, which was issued in 2020. It was about securing the US bulk power system. On the other hand, though, this really is stopping a lot of what was going on under that executive order because DOE announced that it was revoking in order that it had issued that would prohibit electric utilities from buying electrical equipment that had been manufactured or supplied by china or chinese companies this had been a key prohibition under the trump executive order this DOE regulation or regulatory order has now been revoked, and it remains to be seen what will be put in place for, from this order. I think from industry's perspective, the Trump approach had been seen as too broad, too heavy-handed, not really impacting areas that are of greatest national security concern. But this is a bit of reset in, in an area that I think that the everybody agrees is important to continue following. Nick, I want to ask you about some of the reports that we saw last week in the news in a, I don't know how to describe it, a disagreement or a a battle of wills between Signal and Celebrate. Could you comment?
1: I think it's more like a battle of trolling between (laughs) Signal and Celebrate. So... Celebrite makes cell phone forensics tools. So the idea is with a unlocked cell phone with the password, you download all the information from it and then analyze it. And Celebrite recently boasted that we have support for Signal in this. It's a significant tool and you can extract it. If you can extract data from phones, that will be included. Now, Celebrite is, portrayed somewhat as a villain by some people in the privacy hacker community because they'll discover exploits that allow them to break into phones and then not tell the phone companies because well they want to keep breaking into phones. and so signal in a epic bit of trolling got a copy of a celebrate uh tool that, quote unquote, fell off a truck. The truck in question was probably eBay. A lot of the stuff is actually purchasable. Yeah. And then did a security analysis on it. And the thing is, Cellbrite, or Celebrite, I can never pronounce it right, basically has to have a lot of code to interpret a lot of different file formats. And a lot of this code is written in an unsafe language and therefore is, how shall we say, open season for exploitation. So Signal did this, they discovered a couple of vulnerabilities, did a really cool demo, said, oh, we'll disclose these vulnerabilities to Celebrite if uh, Celebrite discloses to the phone vendors uh, the vulnerability Celebrate is using, which will never happen. Oh, and coincidentally, we're at least considering the aesthetic value of putting random files on signal installations that just are completely unrelated. They don't do anything, but they look very pretty. And now that actually isn't something they're going to do because if they actually did put a hack Celebrite code on end user devices, they would be in deep trouble. But it was really a way of making it miserable for Celebrite people because now they're going to have to go in court and the like and deal with all these defense lawyers going see there are vulnerabilities the child exploitation material could have been added by a rogue corrupted version of Celebrite. prove that it wasn't and in the end it's not probably going to affect any cases but it's gonna make it miserable for Celebrite users and celebrate itself over the next few months in court
0: yeah yeah, that is uh, that is definitely a tale of trolling. Amazing what can keep people busy too here. Well, turning back to the Biden administration for just a moment, we had talked about these Russian sanctions that were rolled out about two weeks ago now in response to kind of a litany of bad actions by the Russian government, including the SolarWinds uh, hacking incident. It's been interesting, at least in Washington, to see some of the reaction over the last couple of weeks which has led to uh, a debate about whether we were imposing sanctions on Russia for hacking and data collection activities that the U.S. government itself employs elsewhere. And this is an area where the U.S. government has tried to maintain a line between acceptable activities and those that are more destructive, activities that support election interference, economic espionage to steal IP secrets, or other destructive attacks on computer systems. And I think this is a space where there is going to be some pressure on the Biden administration as it tries to kind of double down on what it's doing with Russia to make sure that it is maintaining some clean lines in the sand as to why it's doing what it's doing and what it believes is kind of fair play from an intelligence perspective and what goes beyond the bounds of acceptable behavior. Because there are people watching these spaces, not just in Washington, D.C. So I, I, it r- remains to be seen. I'm sure there there are plenty of people who would say Russia did well more than solar winds to to have earned the wrath of the administration 10 days ago. But it's kind of a space that's probably worth watching if you're following, some cyber norms, developments, and the like. Uh, And finally, Nick, I wanted to turn back to you. We wouldn't be a complete podcast without an installation of This Week in Supply Chain Attacks. And this week, I think you're going to bring us the unhappy story of a password manager that has been subjected to an attack.
1: Yes, a password manager specifically for enterprises, specifically targeting VPN credentials with supply chain attacked uh, for at least two days with a rogue update and part of the real concern is you have to use password managers to deal with password complexity but if you supply chain attack a password com- password manager you get all the passwords and so 20,000 plus businesses now having a unknown of where every password in your institution compromised and Further making it worse is this was probably a very professional attacker, a nation state class attacker, or really good criminal attacker, because the supply chain attack that they did was multi-stage. It We've captured the first stage, but all the first stage does is download in memory this the actual payload to do the actual whatever the attack was so we don't even know what it was designed to steal what other things it might have done and so this was a very professional supply chain attack and so uh
0: yeah, I mean, to, to someone like me, the, unin, I'll, the uninformed a password manager, partly because I'm a Luddite, but partly because I, I think of it almost as a single point of failure. If I'm if I don't know what I'm using, if I'm using something that's not all that great, it seems like one it's almost like sticking a piece of paper in my desk drawer. Somebody can get uh, access.
1: It is, but it's a necessary single point of failure because the alternative is worse also remember if your computer is compromised the attacker can already get every password you actually use which are all the ones you actually care about so the normal risk from a password manager is is pretty mild and they're really worth it for the convenience value but in terms of putting passwords on pieces of paper that actually is a good strategy you're just storing it in the wrong place you have a lifetime of experience of keeping little green pieces of paper safe in your wallet. So if you need to write down a few passwords, write them down and keep them in your wallet. The the slang version is amateurs write down the password and keep it in their desk drawer. Professionals write down their password and keep it next to their driver's license.
0: (laughs) That is good. We're a full service podcast here. Cybersecurity tips and along along with cybersecurity updates. I wanted to thank Nick and Paul for joining today. I also want to make an announcement to those of you who think you've actually made it to the end of an episode. We are in the process of hiring a part time producer or engineer or intern to staff the podcast. Uh, While the decision to do so hasn't fully been made, I wanted to give you a head start. It will be a paid position for those of you who would prefer doing unpaid internships, I'm sorry to announce. But if you or someone was interested, please do email us, send your resume, cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Thanks also to Weissman Sound Design for our music. This has been episode 359 of the Cyber Law Podcast, uh, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson.